Chapter 7 of For Every Music Lover. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Asbury. For Every Music Lover A Series of Practical Essays on Music by Obertine Woodward Moore. Chapter 7 the poetry and leadership of chopin the piano bard the piano rhapsodist the piano mind the piano soul is chopin said rubinstein tragic romantic lyric heroic dramatic fantastic soulful sweet dreamy brilliant grand simple all possible expressions are found in his compositions, and all are sung by him on his instrument. In these few bold strokes, one who knew him by virtue of close art and race kinship presents an incomparable outline sketch of the Polish tone poet, who explored the harmonic vastness of the pianoforte and made his own all its mystic secrets. Born and bred on Poland soil, son of a French father and a Polish mother, Frederick Chopin, 1809-1849, combined within himself two natures, each complementing the other, both uniting to form a personality not understood by every casual observer. He is described as kind, courteous, possessed of the most captivating grace and ease of manner now inclined to languorous melancholy, now scintillating with a joyous vivacity that was contagious. His sensitive nature, like the most exquisitely constructed sounding-board, vibrated with the despairing sadness, the suppressed wrath, and the sublime fortitude of the brave, haughty, unhappy people he loved, and with his own homesickness when afar from his cherished native land." Patriot and tone-poet in every fiber of his being, his genius inevitably claimed as its own the soul's divinest language, pure music, unfettered by words. The profound reserve of his nature made it peculiarly agreeable to him to gratify the haunting demands of his lyric muse through the medium of the one musical instrument that lends itself in privacy to the exploitation of all the mysteries of harmony. Strong conviction in regard to his own calling and clear perception of the hidden powers and future mission of the piano early compelled him to consecrate to it his unfaltering devotion. He evolved from its more intimate domain effects in sympathy with those of the orchestra, yet purely individual. He enriched it with new melodic, harmonic, and rhythmic devices adapted to itself alone, and endowed it with a warmth of tone coloring that spiritualized it for all time. To the piano he confided all the conflicts that raged within him, all the courage and living hope that sustained him. In giving tonal form to the deep things of the soul, which are universal in their essence and application, he embodied universal rather than merely individual emotional experiences, and thus unbared what was most sacred to himself 
without jarring on the innate reticence which made purely personal confidences impossible. Although his mode of expression was peculiarly his own, he had received a strong impulse from the popular music of Poland. As a child, he had become familiar with the folk songs and dances heard in the harvest fields and at market and village festivals. They were his earliest models. On them were builded his first themes. As Bach glorified the melodies of the German people, so Chopin glorified those of the Poles. The national tonality became to him a vehicle to be freighted with his own individual conceptions. I should like to be to my people what Uhland was to the Germans, he once said to a friend. He addressed himself to the heart of this people and immortalized its joys, sorrows, and caprices by the force of his splendid art. Those who have attempted to interpret him as the sentimental hero of minor moods, the tone poet in whom the weakness of despair predominates, have missed the leaping flames, the vivid intensity, and the heroic manliness permeated with genuine love of beauty that animated him. True art softens the harshest accents of suffering by placing superior to it some elevating idea. So in the most melancholy strains of his music, one who heeds well may detect the presence of a lofty ideal that uplifts and strengthens the travailing soul. It has been said of him that he had a sad heart, but a joyful mind. The two teachers of Chopin were Adalbert Zwaini, a bohemian violinist who taught the piano, and Joseph Elsner, a violinist, organist, and theorist. From Zwaini and Elsner, even the greatest dunce must learn something, he is quoted as saying. Neither of these men attempted to hamper his free growth by rigid technical restraints. Their guidance left him master of his own genius at liberty to soar like the lark into the ethereal blue of the skies. He respected them both. A revering affection was cherished by him for Elsner, to whom he owed his sense of personal responsibility to his art, his habits of serious study, and his intimate acquaintance with Bach. There is food for thought in the fact that this Prince Charming of the piano, whose magic touch awakened the sleeping beauty of the instrument of wood and wires, never had a lesson in his life from a mere piano specialist. Liszt once said Chopin was the only pianist he ever knew that could play the violin on the piano. If he could do so, it was because he had hearkened to the voice of the violin and resolved to show that the piano, too, could produce thrilling effects. In the same way, he had listened to the human voice and determined that the song of his own instrument should be heard. Those who give ear to the piano alone will never learn the secret of calling forth its supreme eloquence. We can see and hear this Raphael of music at the piano. So many and so eloquent have been the descriptions given of his playing. It is easy to fancy him sweeping the ivory keys with his gossamer touch that enveloped with ethereal beauty the most unaccustomed of his complicated chromatic modulations. We can feel his individuality pulsating through every tone 
evoked by those individualized fingers of his as they weave measures for sylphs of dreamland or summon to warfare heroes of the ideal world we are entranced by his luxuriant tone coloring induced to a large extent by his original management of the pedals we marvel at his softly whispered yet ever clearly distinct pianissimo at the full round tone of its relative fortissimo that was never harsh or noisy and at all the exquisitely graded nuances that lay between with those time fluctuations expressive of the ebb and flow of his poetic inner being no wonder balzac maintained that if chopin should but drum on the table his fingers would evoke subtle sounding music and what an example he has left for teachers delicately strung as he was he must often have endured tortures from the best of his pupils but so thoroughly was he consecrated to his art that he never faltered in his efforts to lift those who confided in him to the aerial heights he had found a vivid picture of his method of teaching is given in the lectures on frederick chopin's works and their proper interpretation by the pole jean klesinski the basis of this method consisted in refinement of touch for the attainment of which a natural easy position of the hand was considered by chopin a prime requisite he prepared each hand with infinite care before permitting any attempt at the reproduction of musical ideas in order to place it to advantage he caused it to be thrown lightly on the keyboard so that the five fingers rested on the notes e f sharp g sharp a sharp and b and without change of position required the practice of exercises calculated to ensure independence the pupil was instructed to go through these exercises first staccato affected by a free movement of the wrist an admirable means of counteracting heaviness and clumsiness then legato staccato then accented legato then pure legato modifying the power from pianissimo to fortissimo and the movement from andante to prestissimo he was exceedingly particular about arpeggio work and insisted upon the repetition of every note and passage until all harshness and roughness of tone were eliminated is that a dog barking he was known to exclaim to an unlucky pupil whose attack in the opening arpeggio of a clementi study lacked the desired quality a very independent use of the thumb was prescribed by him he never hesitated about placing it on a black key when convenient and had it passed by muscle action alone in scales and broken chords whose zealous practice in different forms of touch accent rhythm and tone were demanded by him individualization of the fingers was one of his strong points and he believed in assigning to each of them its appropriate part in a good mechanism he said the aim is not to play everything with an equal sound but to acquire beautiful quality of touch and perfect shading of prime importance in his eyes was a clear elastic singing tone one whose exquisite delicacy could never be confounded with feebleness every dynamic nuance he exacted of fingers that fell with freedom and elasticity on the keys and he knew how to augment the warmth and richness of tone coloring 
by setting in vibration sympathetic harmonics of the principal notes through judicious employment of the damper pedal. By precept and example, he advocated frequent playing of the preludes and fugues of Bach as a means of cultivating musical intelligence, muscular independence, and touch and tone discrimination. His musical heroes were Bach and Mozart, for they represented to him nature, strong individuality, and poetry in music. At one time he undertook to write a method or school of piano playing, but never progressed beyond the opening sentences. A message directly from him would have been invaluable to students and might have averted many unlucky misapprehensions of himself and his works. Those of his contemporaries who have hearkened with rapture to his playing have declared that he alone could adequately interpret his tone creations or make perfectly intelligible his method. Pupils of his and their pupils have faithfully endeavored to transmit to the musical world the tradition of his individual style. The elect few have come into touch with his vision of beauty, but it has been mercilessly misinterpreted by thousands of ruthless aspirants to musical honors in the schoolroom, the students' recital, and the concert hall. Whoever plays Chopin with sledgehammer fingers will deaden all sense of his poetry, charm, and grace. Whoever approaches him with weak sentimentalism will miss altogether his dignity and strength. It has been said of him that he was woman in his tenderness and realization of the beautiful, and man in his energy and force of mind. The highest type of artist and human being is thus represented. To interpret him requires simplicity, purity of style, refined technique, poetic imagination, and genuine sentiment, not fitful, fictitious sentimentality. In regard to the much-discussed tempo rubato of Chopin, many and fatal blunders have been made. Players without number have gone stumbling over the piano keys with a tottering, spasmodic gait, serenely fancying they are heeding the master's design. Reckless, out-of-time playing disfigures what is meant to express the fluctuation of thought, the soul's agitation, the rolling of the waves of time and eternity. The rubato, from rubare, to rob, represents a pliable movement that is certainly as old as the Greek drama in declamation, and was employed in atoning the Gregorian chant. The recitative of the 16th century gave it prominence, and it passed into instrumental music. Indications of it in Bach are too often neglected. Beethoven used it effectively. Chopin appropriated it as one of his most potent auxiliaries. In playing, he emphasized the saying of Mozart, Let your left hand be the orchestra conductor, while his right hand balanced and swayed the melody and its arabesques according to the natural pulsation of the emotions. You see that tree, exclaimed Liszt, its leaves tremble with every breath of the wind, but the tree remains unshaken. That is the rubato. There are storms to which even the tree yields to realize them, to divine the laws which regulate the undulating tempest-tossed rubato requires highly matured artistic taste and absolute musical control. Too sensitive to enjoy playing before miscellaneous audiences, whose unsympathetic curiosity, he declared, paralyzed him, Chopin was at his best when interpreting music in private, for a choice circle of friends or pupils, or when absorbed in composition.
It is not too much to say for him that he ushered in a new era for his chosen instrument, spiritualizing its timbre, liberating it from traditional orchestral and choral effects, and elevating it to an independent power in the world of music. Besides enriching the technique of the piano, he augmented the materials of musical expression, contributing fresh charms to those prime factors of musical melody, harmony, and rhythm. New chord extensions, passages of double notes, arabesques, and harmonic combinations were devised by him, and he so systematized the use of the pedals that the most varied nuances could be produced by them. In melody and general conception, his tone poems sprang spontaneously from his glowing fancy, but they were subjected to the most severe tests before they were permitted to go out into the world. Every ingenious device that gave character to his exquisite cantilena and softened his most startling chord progressions was evolved by the vivid imagination of this master from hitherto hidden qualities of the pianoforte. Without him, neither it nor modern music could have been what it is. An accentuation like the ringing of distant bells is frequently heard in his music. To him, bell tones were ever ringing, reminding him of home summoning him to the heights. James Hernicke, the raconteur of the musical courier, discussing the compositions of Chopin in his delightful and inspiring book Chopin, the Man, and His Music, calls the studies titanic experiments, the preludes moods in miniature, the nocturnes night and its melancholy mysteries, the ballades fairy dramas, the poloneses, heroic hymns of battle, the valses and mazurkas, dances of the soul, the scherzos, the work of Chopin, the conqueror. In the sonatas and concertos he sees the princely pole bravely carrying his banner amid classical currents. For the impromptus alone he found no name and says of them, to write of the four impromptus in their own key of unrestrained feeling and pondered intention, would not be as easy as recapturing the first careless rapture of the lark. Unquestionably, the poetry of Chopin is of the most exquisite lyric character. His leadership is supreme. So original was his conception, so finished his workmanship, so sublime his purpose, that we may well exclaim with Schumann, he is the boldest, proudest poetic spirit of the time, his greatness is his aristocracy, says Oscar B. He stands among musicians in his faultless vesture, a noble from head to foot. End of chapter 7 The Poetry and Leadership of Chopin Recording by David Asbury, Jaredstown, West Virginia